Hi, this is Let's Go Again, a philosophical and practical podcast for indie creatives navigating reality while building the dream. I'm your host, Courtney Romano, a writer-director in New York City and the founder of Queensbird Films. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about how to build a platform as an indie creative. You want to grow your audience. You want to make money doing what you love. You want to feel like your work is generative and creating more work. And at the same time, the structures of big industries are kind of collapsing. We see this in film and TV everywhere. The typical models of growth aren't yielding great results. So how do you build a platform from the ground up in an environment that seems hostile to even the biggest players? That's what we're going to talk about today. But first, updates from this week and an offering for you. So for what I worked on this week, if you're following along, last week I shared that I had actually finished my second feature script, and I'm super excited about this. It feels like the script has good bones, and I know I have a lot of work ahead of me, but I also feel like the basics are there, and that feels really good. Because truthfully, once I know that the script has good bones, then I can have fun. It's a super intensive process for me going into the second draft, and I really tear the whole thing apart. <laughs> but before I get into the second draft, I also have learned over time that I have to give it space. I have to let the script breathe, and I switch gears from output to input. So to be in input mode, I've been doing some additional research on the topic. Uh, I wrote a narrative, but I've been watching documentaries about the general topic. I've been getting into discussions with friends and Googling weird things, and none of this will probably show up in my script. But I know if I let myself hang out and play around in the idea from a few different angles before I'm writing draft two, I know that once I do get to draft two, I'm going to have a well of unconscious connections and material to work with. I'm also of the mind lately that reading is writing. You know what I mean? Like the more I read, the more I understand communication. I see how other people write. I'm getting the actual content of the thing that I'm reading, but then I'm also getting the form, the structure, the technical point of view of the writer. I'm not currently reading any other scripts, but usually in the writing process, I do end up doing that. In the last feature I wrote, I spent some time uh, understanding and, and looking at the women talking script. In the first pilot I ever wrote, I spent time with the Breaking Bad pilot. There's always, 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 always something to learn from seeing the words on the page and knowing how they compare to the screen. So <laughs> now that I'm telling you this, I, I do think that's going to be a next step in my process once I cut back into the draft to edit it. In the meantime, however, I'm trying to read about 25 pages a day of whatever. I have a short reading list. I'm reading like four different books right now. Three of them are nonfiction and one of them is fiction. And reading 25 pages a day is actually um, <laughs> super hard with a kindergartner and another child under one. Ideally, I'd love to be reading 50 pages a day, but you know we're under-promising and over-delivering over here. And I know that doing this reading now is, again, giving my unconscious mind more to work with. It's like doing reps so that when I get back into work on the second draft, hopefully I won't be exactly the same as the I who wrote that first draft. And if I can create a gap between where I was then and where I am you know, whenever I go back into the draft, 
I find that I can actually get a conversation with myself going. And this is really important because it lets me be, be playful and more imaginative and the process feels fun. And then I spend more time doing the hard work because it's feeling fun. So that is where I am in my writing process. And now I want to know where you are. Where are you? Where are you? What are you working on? Tell me everything. Leave me a message on Spotify. You can leave me a voice message or DM me or email me. Everything you need to find me is in the show notes. So don't be shy. I could talk process and ideas all day if you let me. So come find me. Let's talk shop. Time for today's offering. I'm excited to be getting back into the Animal Spirits deck by Kim Kranz today. I love this deck for a card pull, and I have been feeling really connected lately to images and stories about animals. Um, I don't know why. So anyway, I felt like this one felt right for today. You can hopefully hear me shuffling the cards. As always, this um, you know pulling of a card is for you. It's for you, dear listener, wherever you are, whenever you're listening to this. My advice is to simply let your unconscious mind bubble up to the surface and make whatever connection it makes for you. There's nothing too complicated about it. A lot of the work that I'm doing right now is based in kind of bringing my own unconscious up to the surface. And I find that pulling a card from any deck or meditating or exercising or, um, you know, free writing, doing morning pages, all of these things are tools to help us connect to our unconscious. And our unconscious, I think, as artists, is like, it's like, I don't know, the bank vault. It's like, oh, you need resources (laughs) for your project? Go down there. No one's ever down there. (laughs) You probably don't know what's stored in there, but there's gold in them, their hills. Like, the unconscious is where we I think differentiate ourselves, come up with like really great ideas, some terrible ideas, of course, but mostly just like very imaginative, creative, playful, exciting things. So that's why I always like to do a card pull in these episodes because I just want to remind myself, remind you that, you know, creating art, creating indie art, it encourages our own depth at you know, the rebellion of these outside traditional forces, if that makes any sense to you. Um, So today we're going to pull from the animal spirits card. And today's card that just flipped right out of the deck for me is the bear. Okay. And the guidebook written by Kim Kranz has this to say about the bear. Waking from spiritual slumber, beginning anew. After a long winter, the bear rises from deep slumber. At first, the movement and effort are difficult, but the bear knows it's time to awaken and move toward the dawning light. The bear card represents an individual on the cusp of new directions and personal transformation. The initial weeks and months of the spiritual quest may feel tricky, cumbersome, and full of obstacles, but you have no choice, bear. (laughs) Winter wanes, the warmth of spring emerges, and your transformation begins. When it's in balance, there's inner strength and a yearning to grow. When out of balance, withdrawal, lethargy, heaviness, and to bring into balance, movement, exercise. Well, I mean, geez, I just talked about exercise. So there you go. That's one thing that stands out to me. And then the other thing is that stands out to me from this guidebook and what it says about the bear 
is this knowing that there's a path, knowing that there's something new that you've got to do, but also knowing that there might be a slowness at the beginning. And this is definitely something that I'm feeling with all my work always is it feels like it's a slow build. Um, and I feel that on the micro scale with like individual projects, I feel that on the macro scale uh, scale with my career as a whole. Um, but I think it's also interesting that that comes up for the bear because I think of a bear as like very strong and powerful and forceful. So um, yeah, I guess that's where I'm landing with it today. I wonder how it landed for you. Either way, let's let the bear set the tone for today's episode about building your platform. I've been reading a lot about the demise of television and movies lately. As you might expect, that's like sort of disheartening for someone who calls herself a filmmaker. This past summer, I was reading a piece in The New Yorker called Hollywood's Slow-Mo Self-Sabotage. I don't know if you saw this one, but it explained how studios are painting themselves into a corner with franchises and existing IP and just making franchises from existing IP and never taking a bet on new material and instead just gaming out what already exists and juicing it for all it's materially worth and not giving audiences a chance to fall in love with something new. Actually, it's funny that we pulled the bear card because in this article or one of the other articles I'm going to tell you about, they actually talked about how the bear, that TV show, the bear, which I, is incredible, um, is one of these kind of like slipped through the cracks, uh, new IP pieces. And that's why everyone loves it because it is novel. It is fresh. This New Yorker piece also talks about how there are no movie stars anymore, but just people who fill the shoes of star characters. There are like 26 Spider-Men. I mean, I don't know if there are that many, but there's probably eight. Is there eight? And it's not the star in the role that people get excited for. It is the role itself. The, the piece goes on to say that even extras are being shut out. It says, for those emerging actors who used to see background work as an entry point to a notoriously gatekept industry, it turns out that studios might prefer to digitally scan their likeness instead, possibly locking them out of opportunities for more days on set. This was, of course, the conversation while the writers and actors were simultaneously striking. And even now with writers back to work, there are still pieces coming out of the New Yorker talking about the fall of this industry. The latest piece was called The Twilight of Prestige Television. And by the way, anything that I reference in here that I'm reading, I will 1000% link in the show notes so you can, you know, renew your New Yorker subscription and read them all. This one was about streamers becoming the new cable. And like, not in a good way. <laughs> Streamers disrupted the industry 10 years ago, and they're now moving to um, their base tier being an ad-sponsored tier. They're going to have commercials. Some of them already do have commercials. So, you know, you're not going to be able to binge your favorite show without someone cutting in to sell you pills that you should talk to your doctor about. So if, if streamers who were supposed to be disruptive are acting like cable TV, they're going to make things that look like Cable TV, they're going to speak to the broadest audience possible so we don't offend the pill people. There's not going to be art that pokes or instigates. It's going to be bland. It's going to be palatable. It's, it's going to be stuff to have on in the background. The prestige part of prestige TV is gone. So this is the state of creative output at what we would call, quote unquote, the highest levels of industry, at least the place in industry where the most money is being matriculated and passed around. 
So at least there's still money up there, right? And well, interestingly enough, like maybe, like sometimes you can make money there and sometimes you can't. As we've seen with last summer strikes, residuals checks don't really mean a whole lot to people substantially. Even Sydney Sweeney did a whole piece in The Hollywood Reporter about the difficulty in paying her bills. Sydney Sweeney of Euphoria and White Lotus fame, she talked about the percentages of her paycheck that go to her lawyers and publicists and agents and business managers, and how unless you're one of a handful of stars, residuals and paychecks are simply not what they used to be. So you have to have an army of people employed to keep getting these high-profile jobs. But then these high-profile jobs that you get actually don't pay for the lifestyle or, or the business creep that's required in order to get them. It's a cycle that begets hustling. And when we pine for a stable career, that's the reality of what we're actually pining for. We're imagining these people like Sydney Sweeney, you know, look, she mama has a 4.3 million dollar house so like we're not <laughs> like she's good right but she's existentially or philosophically psychologically in this hollywood reporter piece talking about tension talking about stress so if that's the lay of the land if that's how it is out there in tv land and of course tv land is a um a stand in for many other industries for instance, I know that publishing is in a very similar moment right now. And so this is what's happening out there for the biggest players in these industries. So so if that's what's happening, what is the alternative? How can we actually create a platform to make work and do art and, you know, simply also keep the heat on? Is the dream just a dream? All of this has been set up to sound like I'm a pessimist, pessimist <laughs> but I am not a pessimist. I am an idealist. I am even dare I say it, an optimist. So I have a theory. As I've been reading all about the demise of capital prospects for the working artist, I've also been reading about third places. This has nothing to do with the film industry and everything to do with urban planning, but just go with me for a second. I promise, I promise you, I will bring it back. So in sociology, in urban planning and all of this, home is considered the first place that people go. Work is considered the second place that people go. And then there is a third place. And these third places are places that enrich the fabric of life. They are breeding grounds for serendipities. Third places could be like a playground, a city park, a coffee shop, a stoop, a gym, a bookstore, or, you know, the blessed of all places everywhere, a public library. Ray Oldenburg, who wrote the book A Great Good Place, said that third places are a place where you relax in public, which I, I love that idea, and that these places are necessary for a civil society, for democracy, for establishing a sense of place. There are eight characteristics of a third place. This, of course, was gotten from Wikipedia. So I'm going to go through these kind of fast, but you can always find it on Wikipedia. Number one, they are neutral ground. They don't need you to be there. There's no obligation to be there. No one who is in that space has to be there because of finances, politics, or the law. Number two, they are a leveling place. So your role in society does not matter for you to enter there. There are people who are in different socioeconomic classes. There are people with 
absolutely different backgrounds. There are no prereqs. There are no requirements that would prevent you from being able to enter this space. Number three, conversation is the main activity. So playful, happy conversation, witty conversation, fun, lighthearted, humorous conversation is really important in the space and maybe the main focus of this space. Even though there are other focuses and other activities, the tone of conversation is highly valued in this space. Number four, accessibility and accommodation. So third places must be open and readily accessible to anyone who occupies them. And this also means providing for the wants of their inhabitants and making people feel like their needs are being fulfilled by just being in that third place. Number five is the regulars. The third place has a lot of regulars and the regulars are who give the space its tone, its mood, its vibe, its characteristics. And also the regulars are the ones who attract newbies. They help people come into that space who've never been in that space before and make them feel welcome and accommodated. Number six, a third place has a low profile. It is wholesome. It is not grandiose. It is cozy. It's not pretentious. It is accepting. Number seven, the mood is playful. The tone of conversation in third places is never marked with tension or hostility. There's a playful nature, witty conversation, frivolous banter. Not only are they welcome, they are actively highly prized in these spaces. And number eight, it's a home away from home. So people who are in the third places feel as warm and connected and as in belonging as they do in their own home. It's not just a place where they go. They feel rooted there. There's spiritual growth and regeneration and vibrancy that comes from being in that third place. So third places are not exactly the same, but kind of in the same vibe as Jane Jacobs' theory about the sidewalk ballet. So in one of the most impactful books of all time, Death and Life of Great American Cities, Jacobs maintains that sidewalks are one of the ways that cities organize themselves and establish order. And not in a way that is like the suburbs where things are neatly squared off, but in a way that is messy, complex, and roundabout. Here's what she says. Wherever the old city is working successfully is a marvelous order for maintaining the safety of the streets and the freedom of the city. It is a complex order. Its essence is intricacy of sidewalk use bringing with it a constant succession of eyes. This order is all composed of movement and change, and although it is life, not art, we may fancifully call it the art form of the city and liken it to the dance, not the simple-minded precision dance with everyone kicking up at the same time, twirling in unison and bowing off en masse, but liken it to an intricate ballet in which the individual dancers and ensembles all have distinctive parts which miraculously reinforce each other and compose an orderly whole. The ballet of the good city sidewalk never repeats itself from place to place and in any one place is always replete with new improvisations. So one of the things that I missed the most during COVID was the sidewalk. The serendipitous rendezvous with strangers that we have every day in New York City, I longed for that. I missed that so much. After I drop my daughter off at school every day, I, I run into everyone, everyone on the street. 
I run into the flower seller at the corner. We always say hello. And I've bought something from them like only a handful of times. I see the school mom who's running late with her kids and we share the mom wink, which is code for, yes, my morning was also atrocious. How was yours? Same. Yes. Great. Thank you. Okay. Solidarity. Wonderful. Have a great day. Then there's the older man who I always see taking a morning constitutional. I think I figured out where he lives now. I think he lives directly across from the flower cellar. And we always pass twice. So I'm pushing my son in my in, in the stroller and walking with my daughter and I see him once. And then after I drop my daughter off and it's just me and my son, I see him another time. So we always smile and nod to each other because it would be awkward to see each other that many times <laughs> in one morning and not acknowledge it. And then there's a the woman who passes just in front of my apartment at just the time I get home with my son. And I've never spoken to her before. And I don't even know if we've actually made like direct eye contact, but I always wonder if she notices me because of being pregnant last year. And I always think about like, I wonder if she noticed my growing belly. And one day she was like, oh, that woman is pregnant. And then I wonder if she noticed that like I was gone for a month. And when my belly got really, really big, I was gone for a month. And then I wonder if she notices the stroller with the little baby in it. And I wonder if she's tracking the changes in her own life against my changes. Like I'm tracking my changes against her just being there. Her just walking in front of my house has helped me like see the linear evolution of my life. All these things are are so important to the fabric of our days. These tiny little seemingly inconsequential moments are the fabric of our days. And it's what I miss the most when I when we couldn't get out during COVID. It's a big reason I don't want to move to the burbs. I mean, who knows? You know, like I never hold myself to anything. Uh, as my friend Michelle says, I'm allowed to change my mind. Um, but I don't want to move to the burbs or even a less walkable city because the sidewalks are so important. I like to know that at any time, someone is out there and I could run into them. At this point in this podcast episode, you may be asking yourself, Courtney, what does any of this have to do with building my platform? I get that you're into urban planning right now, but like, please, please, woman, bring it back. So let me respond directly and bring it back. (laughs) This brings me to how we build our digital worlds, the neighborhoods we hang out in on the internet. What are those digital third places? Where do we go to hang out? Is it social media? or newsletters, or podcasts, or or what other places do we go to relax and have the fabric of our lives enriched? Where are those digital third places? And what is the sidewalk ballet when it's virtual? Is it in the comments? Is it in the engagement? Is it in how many people press play on this podcast episode? I'm not totally sure. I don't know. I, I really don't know. I'm thinking about it. I'm kind of obsessing over it. But because there's such a grim outlook for how industry works for most people, I have a hunch that figuring out these digital third places and the sidewalk ballet of it all is actually how to build a platform as artists. The old model for success in film was to be a movie star. And now even those closest to movie stardom have to build their own platforms. Gwyneth has Goop. There are so many film directors I see out there attempting to build a platform as they are creating their movies, you know, directors that I would think wouldn't have to, but it makes sense. Almost every big star we've heard of has multiple income streams and builds those streams off of their platforms. 
They are making money off of, you know, selling shoes or fashion, perfume, doing commercials for uh, insurance or, or selling vitamins, supplements, beauty products, commodities. Their platforms are their main source of power. So if all of that is happening at what some might consider the top echelons, at least, you know, in terms of where money is circulated the most of the industry, if, if those people are trying to build platforms, if it's happening there, then where does that leave the indie creative? And this is where she ties it all together. This is where I think the digital third place comes in. My thesis is that as indie creatives, if we unapologetically build digital third places, we will find a way forward through this changing industry. It's my observation that the gains from working in the big, massive projects get smaller and smaller and more squeezed. It's my prediction that as audiences experience this shift from peak prestige work to a more factory-made, processed food sort of content with a capital C, they are A, going to notice, and B, going to long for something else, something they can't quite put their finger on, something that's actually good, something messier, with soul, with guts. And at that point, they will stop trusting the algorithm from the streamer gods and start listening to their friends and family. What are you watching? What is so underground that its value hasn't been degraded by mass appeal yet? What is punk rock out there? And at that point, when people are asking those questions, when they are looking for something better and they don't know where to look, owning a digital third place is a dominion perfectly positioned for indie artists and creatives. It's my opinion that the work with a capital W of the artist intrinsically creates vibrancy and connection, which are two characteristics of third places and which makes the indie creative a perfect leader for this kind of post-Hollywood or post-industry movement. A lot of what I've made is free. My short film screen test, you can watch that for free. My web series, Kinsley Versus, watch it for free. This podcast and my other podcast, The Break Breakdown, they're both free. And I write a free newsletter every week. In all of these free things, these free places, I have regulars. I ask for feedback and conversation, and I try to give them tone. I try to establish a playful home away from home where people's lives feel enriched for just for having engaged. I hope it's giving digital third space. But the question is this, right? You're asking it. Does that pay off? Okay, court. So whatever. Like maybe a digital third space is a cool thing to exist. but. Is there a payoff for the creative? And truthfully, if I'm really answering that commercially, I do not know yet. I don't. My guess is kind of like, you know, the bear card that we pulled at the beginning of this. My guess is it takes time and attention and intention. One thing I can say is that artistically, I have never been as far along as close to what I aspire to be as an artist as I am now. I have a lot more to go, but my hunch is that if I keep getting better, more discerning, more thoughtful, and more courageous in putting it out there, that eventually, commercially, it will pay off. But I also know that I'm not going to be able to game out that model before putting my work out. Putting my work out first has to come before the business model. Because if I am just trying to recreate what's already out there, I know what's already out there is broken. 
And by building these third places, we're actually building a different kind of community. We are creating a place for serendipity. Okay, so if the commercial model of the industry doesn't quite work for artists, what will? My theory is threefold. I think that it's a combination of building a platform, identifying several income streams, and then using serendipity as a business development strategy. Not as the only one, but as a tactic. So number one, I think when we look at a digital third place, the sidewalk ballet theory and the state of the industry at large, we can see how building a platform that embodies the ethos of the sidewalk in the third place is foundational. I don't think I really need to go on on that. I think I've either persuaded you or (laughs) I haven't at this point, but the value of a third place and creating that is where everything is going to be built from. Number two, much like movie stars who sell perfume and supplements and do commercials for car insurance to supplement their artistic work, I think indie creatives have to create multiple income streams that supplement the bigger artistic work. The bigger artistic work could make money, but there's also the ability of the artist and the creative to make money a whole host of ways that work as a kind of ecosystem. And lastly, I don't think that serendipity is everything, but I think if you're not working on it and you're not working with it, you're missing out on an extremely easy, fun, and exciting way to create and build your, you know, indie career. It can be as simple as, you know, being in class with someone and finding your newest producing partner, or it can be as random as bumping into an old friend who hands you a book that you decide to base your entire marketing strategy off of. I can't tell you what would happen for you if you bring serendipity into your business strategy because every single person is different. And so the possibilities within them based on their inner lives are different. And and I could never fully know, as I'm still understanding mine, all the different connections that could be made by putting the work out there. But it's my belief that creating these digital third places with our work will bring out opportunities we can't plan or predict, and they will help us jump into the flow of making a life as an artist. When I put out my book, it was potentially the path that I got to screenwriting and to filmmaking because I put out my book in 2015, and then it was optioned by a producing team. I would have never made that connection had I not put out my book first. To buttress my little working theory is Lewis Hyde, who wrote The Gift. He said, a market exchange has an equilibrium or stasis. You pay to balance the scale. But when you give a gift, there is momentum and the weight shifts from body to body. So this is how I think we grow an audience, right? We offer our work as a gift. We allow our gift to move from person to person, word of mouth. We create those regulars in that third place that allows newbies to come in. And instead of trying to toil away, trying to recreate business models that are no longer working for even the most successful of us, why don't we try to create something else? Something perhaps more ancient and more human, a third place, a sidewalk ballet, a gift that we can give and let the complexity of it be its self-defining order. My idea is that we create as many third places as possible, and with it, we allow the compounding interest of complexity to define an order that builds a platform, creates resources, and allows us to enrich our communities with our creative work. So in that spirit, here are some of my favorite digital third places, gifts that have been given to me. I can't repay the people who made these third places, 
but I can pass these gifts on to you. And hopefully as we pass on and on and on, that word of mouth comes back to them. The first one is Michelle Pelazan, who writes the Divergent Strategies newsletter for holisticism and also Spaces, an amazing substack all about creative process. The second uh, digital third place that I love is the How to Be Human podcast by Anna Tonk. It's just so much fun and so delightful. And I break through after breakthrough whenever I listen to her talk about these big, big ideas. And number three is the Artists Raising Kids Compendium. I sent it out in my newsletter last week, but I'll link it below here too. As a parent raising children and also trying to make art, this was I this was like a solve for me. It was just great. It just made me feel seen and held and actually excited to do the work that I do as a parent. All of these will be linked in the show notes, of course, and hopefully you can go and check out all of their work. These are just little doorways into some of the third places that they have. And hopefully you can also see that a newsletter, a podcast, PDF, you can see what kind of digital third places you can make with your work. Also, I'm going to share another little gift with you in the show notes, a reading list to help solidify the way you might be thinking about building your platform in this kind of like gift economy, word of mouth, digital third place sidewalk theory way. And I hope you find the reading list useful. All of these books have helped me in huge ways. And so you can just grab that by going to the link in the show notes. But before we go, let's make a little bit more sense and order (laughs) out of these urban planning theories and bring them down to earth to come up with the first step for you to create your own digital third place. Okay, as always, you can listen through this or you can, you know, listen and journal and, and pause the recording and keep going back and forth. Number one, what do you feel compelled to make right now? Is it Uh, a film? Is it a book? Is it you're not quite sure, but you just like really love uh, painting and you don't really know what you would want to do with it? Number two, what container could you offer it in that acted like a digital third place? So think back to all of those eight characteristics that I laid out, the regulars, the conversational tone, the accessibility and accommodation. What kind of structure could you offer your work in? Number three, money aside, what would you gain from it? I say money aside only because I feel like that's a secondary thing. I think the first thing is what you would gain from it because if you're not feeling attached to that like bigger mission or deeper, I should say deeper mission, then there's never going to be enough energy to like keep going. Number four, how would you create this if you weren't holding back? If you ignored the money aspect of it for a second and kind of just trust that the resourcing and the development and the opportunities and the serendipities come only after the work is produced, then what would you create with Wild Abandon? What would it look like? And number five, what's the first thing you would need to do, the smallest, tiniest, teensy, tiniest baby step to make that thing happen? Maybe it's researching between a Squarespace site and a Wix website. Maybe it's um, researching email servers. Maybe it's buying a book that you know would be really inspiring to you that maybe you want to you know, get inspired to create this book of poetry based on 
this book that you see, whatever it is, right? It's the smallest step. The truth is I'm in this place in my life right now where I feel a huge drive to create. And I also understand the limits of my own life and responsibilities and the money that I need to keep everything afloat. I am fully aware of it. I am not so optimistic that I am forgetting that, yes, indeed, the lights must be kept on. But I'm also at a point where I have done enough work and I have seen enough projects through from beginning to end that I know that serendipities, I know that platform building, I know that growing an audience only comes after the work is out there. There are no guarantees, obviously. But if we think about the digital third place as a kind of vibe, as a container for us to put our work in, it brings something different to the table. If we think about the sidewalk ballet theory and and think about how order comes out of complexity by people just engaging with your work, we can see how we can scaffold our career forward. And if we think about the gift economy, when there's not necessarily just a transactional value, but you get so much value out of something that you receive that you pass it on to someone else, we can see how that is regenerative back to the indie creator. And when we think about all of these in context of where the industry is right now, honestly, to me, it sounds like a good bet. It sounds like a place I would be willing to try, at least. And hey, who knows? Maybe the industry, after all of these negotiations and talks with the unions, will come back and be an amazing place to work. And I hope for that to be true, too. I would love both. Can we have both a very healthy industry and a very healthy, uh, independent, uh, creative boom? Let's do both. Okay, that's all I've got for you today. Thank you so much for hanging around for this super long episode about urban planning. (laughs) I appreciate you. Um, If this was at all helpful to you and you want to pass it on to someone else, uh, my gift to you and your gift to someone else, I would obviously be so grateful for that. And one way to do that, if you're not sure who to send this episode to, is to just give us a rating and review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. We're starting to get a few and they're like... They really make my day. Thank you so much for everyone who's already rated and reviewed us. And I I hope you'll consider it if you haven't already. You can always tag us on social at Let's Go Again Pod. You can find that free link to the November reading list in the show notes, along with all of the books and essays and articles that I mentioned in this. It's going to be like a veritable syllabus by the time I'm done with you today. And again, I just really appreciate you being here. It's a thrill to just make these episodes for you and feel like we're building a community and a third place. And um, yeah, you make it fun. Thanks for being here. I'll see you next week. 